Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Seventy-seven years ago, in this Amsterdam annex, Anne Frank, her family, and four others were discovered by the Nazis after more than two years in hiding. Oh, well, this, this is the this famous is the bookcase. bookcase. That, this is the bookcase. Is used to camouflage the entrance to the hiding place. It's one of the most well-known accounts of life under Nazi occupation, and one without a critical answer. Who betrayed Anne Frank's family? The reason This retired FBI agent and his all-star team of investigators believe they have finally found the answer. And a surprising twist. Wait, wait. So in the files, there's reference to a note that Otto Frank received that mentions this specific name? Remarkably so, yes. It's listed right there. On stage, Chris Stapleton can silence an arena with a slow-burning ballad or manipulate his guitar to sound like trouble walking through the door. So why are musicians like Adele and Pink so eager to work with this clearly country musician? Just listen. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 75 years after its publication, The Diary of Anne Frank remains among the most widely read books in the world. Blinkering between hope and despair, the account of a Jewish teenager's life in hiding in an annex behind an Amsterdam warehouse gave voice and a face to millions of victims of the Nazi genocide. Yet one question has gone stubbornly unanswered all these years. Who alerted the Nazi search team in 1944 to Anne Frank and her family's hiding place? Two Dutch police inquiries and countless historians have come up with theories, but no firm conclusions. Then, in 2016, a team of investigators, led by a veteran FBI agent, decided to bring modern crime-solving techniques and technology to this cold case. And now they believe they have an answer, one we'll share with you tonight, to a question that's bedeviled historians and haunted Holland. Who was responsible for the betrayal? Vince Pancoke had turned in his badge and gun. He was two years into a comfortable Florida retirement when his phone rang in the spring of 2016. I received a call from a colleague from the Netherlands who said, if, you, if you're done laying on the beach, we have a case for you. Were you laying on the beach? I, I was actually driving to the beach. I wasn't quite there yet. Pancoke spent three decades as an FBI special agent targeting Colombian drug cartels. His work had also taken him to the Netherlands, where his investigative chops left an impression. Were you looking to get back when he told you what it was about? After he told me it was to you know, try to solve the mystery of what caused the raid for Anne Frank and the others in the annex, I needed to hear more. 4,000 miles away in Amsterdam, Thijs Bayens, a Dutch filmmaker and documentarian, had been asking around for a credentialed investigator to dig into a question that he feels Holland has never quite reckoned with, one that gets to the essence of human nature. For me, it was really important to investigate what makes us uh, uh, give up on each other. The area where Anne Frank lived is very normal, and it's a very warm area with the butcher and the doctor and the policeman. They work together, they loved each other, they lived together, and suddenly people start to betray on each other. How could that happen? Of the millions, literally millions of stories to come out of the Holocaust, why do you think this one resonates the way it does? I think right after the war, people were shown the concentration camps the atrocities that took place, the horror. And suddenly you find this innocent, beautiful, very smart, funny, talented girl, and she, as a lighthouse, comes out of the darkness. And then I think humanity said, this is who we are. Betraying fellow Dutch to the Nazis was a criminal offense in the Netherlands. But two police probes and a whole library of books dedicated to the Anne Frank case yielded neither convictions nor definitive conclusions. This question of who betrayed Anne Frank, that had been investigated for years. What was going to make your investigation different than the ones before it? If it's a criminal act, it should be investigated by police. So we set it up as a cold case. Like so many, Pancoke had read the diary in middle school in western Pennsylvania, and it left a mark. There would be no perp walks or busted crime syndicates here, but he was intrigued, cautiously. You hear, we're going to go back and look at Anne Frank, and that 
might have the ring of some schlocky media creation. Did that worry you? No, it did. It did, because as a career investigator, I didn't want to be associated with any type of a tabloid-type investigation. You had to make sure this was serious. Let's face it, I mean, the honor of the diary, the honor of Anne Frank, we had to treat this with utmost respect. What ultimately sealed it for Vince Pancoke? The guarantee of absolute autonomy. The ground rules? Tice Byans would oversee the operation and could film the process for a documentary he's been making. There would be a book about it, which helped finance the project, along with funding from the city of Amsterdam. But this was going to be an independent undertaking with serious investigators. And Vince Pancoke was going to take the lead digging in. You'd done cold cases before. Before this, what was the biggest gap in time between when you were approached and when the, the crime occurred? It was about a five-year crime at that point. So it's 75 years. It's a little different. It's a lot different. This is more than cold. This, yeah, this was frozen. To chip away, Pancoke had to draw up his own blueprint. He knew that there was going to be more information to plow through than any human could handle, and that artificial intelligence could be a secret weapon. The book mentioned An FBI man's dream team was assembled. An investigative psychologist, a war crimes investigator, historians, criminologists, plus an army of archival researchers. What did all these people with disparate skills bring to this? They brought a different view. It was all of these skills that help us understand and put into context a crime that happened you know, in 1944. We have to look at things differently. Together, they dove into a familiar story. The Frank family had moved to Amsterdam from Germany to escape the rise of Hitler. They found safety in Holland, where Otto Frank ran a manufacturing business. But then the Nazis invaded in 1940. Two years later, the Franks, Otto, wife Edith, Anne, and her sister Margot, along with four other Jewish friends of the family, went into hiding in an annex behind Otto's warehouse. Today, it's preserved as a museum. Dr. Hetian Brook, a historian at the Anne Frank house, showed us in. Oh, well, this, this is the this famous bookcase. Book this is the bookcase. It's used to camouflage the entrance to the hiding place. The bookcase helped protect the Franks, as did a handful of Otto's close colleagues at the warehouse, who were in on the secret. We'll go inside. Mind your head. After the raid, the Nazis took anything that wasn't nailed down. These recreations show what it looked like. Two cramped floors, 761 days, more than two excruciating years indoors. The office workers brought food and supplies, but the eight in hiding couldn't make a sound during the day. By night, they could listen to the radio, desperately plotting updates from the front on this map. Here's a newspaper clipping from shortly after uh, D-Day, June 1944, with the pins that tried to follow the advances of the Allied troops in the days and weeks probably after. This is June 1944. June so... 1944, so there's hope. His Allied forces are on the way. Their life depended on what would happen. Anne's bedroom walls, familiar to any teenager, preserved from the day she was taken away. Here, she chronicled the monotony and the horror of life in hiding. Outside, things are terrible day and night, she wrote in January 1943. These poor people are being dragged away with nothing but a backpack and a little bit of money. Her last entry was dated August 1st, 1944. She was 15. Take me to the day of the raid. It's the summer of 1944, and what happens that day? It's a warm day, sunny, 
And around 10.30, between 10.30 and 11, a couple of men walk in. They were detectives with a Dutch police unit working with the Nazis. An SS officer named Silberbauer led the team. They demanded to be shown around the warehouse. They end up in front of the bookcase, which is hiding the entrance to the annex. And it's important, I think, to realize that two of the policemen present had been seasoned detectives, well-experienced. They had been searching this type of building in the inner city of Amsterdam before. They knew there was likely something behind that bookcase. The stunned inhabitants they found were marched out. On the floor behind them, Anne's diary, which a quick-thinking office worker, loyal to the Franks, preserved. Of the eight taken away, Otto Frank was the only survivor. The others were among the 100,000 Dutch Jews, three-quarters of the country's Jewish population, to die at the hands of the Nazis. In an interview with CBS in 1964, Otto recounted what happened when his family was put on the cattle cars to Auschwitz a month after their capture. On September 4th, 1944, the last transport went to Auschwitz. Well, when we arrived in Auschwitz, there were men standing there with clubs. Women here, men there. We were separated right on the, at the station. So women went to Birkenau camp and we went to Auschwitz camp from the station. Well, I never saw my family again. After the war, Otto Frank was determined to find out who betrayed the hiding place to the Nazis. It was the question many readers asked after he published his daughter's diary in 1947. But after a couple of years, Otto abruptly stopped looking. More on that curious decision later. When Vince Pancoke went to Amsterdam to begin his search, his first stop, naturally, was the scene of the crime. I call this the most visited crime scene in the world because so many people from all over the world, you know, millions of people come here. So when you come here for the first time, what are you looking for? Well, as an investigator, I want to see what's in the area. Of course, I want to see inside the building. I want to reconstruct how the actual arrest took place and who participated in it. Pancoke and his team spent hours in the annex looking for any clue, however remote. So you can see it right. right through those bushes. He also cased the exterior, today almost exactly as it was then. This is the courtyard that is behind the annex. And it's, as you can see, it's totally enclosed. This courtyard area is surrounded by the buildings of the neighborhood. I'm thinking one cough that gets overheard, one window that happens to be open at the wrong time. The sheer risk factor here is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. When we first started the case, one of the theories that was out there is that the raid may have been caused by somebody in the immediate area seeing something, hearing something, and reporting it. So therefore, we tracked and identified every resident that lived in this block and adjacent streets. Using the artificial intelligence program, Pancoke and his team mapped potential threats. In the courtyard surrounding the annex, they found Nazi party members and even known informants. All living just a, a wall or two away from one another. When you take a look at the threats, the question isn't, you know, what caused the raid? The question might be, how did they last more than two years without being discovered? It strikes me in a case like this, Anyone could be a suspect, a Nazi 
sympathizer, an informant, someone who happens to walk by and hear a cough. How did you navigate that? We had to consider all those options. The team and I sat down and we compiled a list of ways in which the annex could have been compromised. You know, was it carelessness of the people occupying the annex, maybe making too much noise or being seen in the windows? Um, you know, was it betrayal? There is a theory out there that no one betrayed the Frank family. This was coincidence or this was good detective work. Do you buy that at all? No, no. I mean, we took that theory apart, you know, bit by bit. This doesn't play out the way it does, but for a specific tip. Exactly. Who provided that tip to the Nazis? When we come back, Vince Pancoke and the cold case team narrow down their list of suspects. And for the very first time, we'll reveal who they believe betrayed the Franks. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Vince Pancoke, the 30-year FBI veteran, had worked plenty of cold cases, but none this cold. It had been more than seven decades since Anne Frank and her family had been discovered in their hiding place in central Amsterdam and ultimately put on cattle cars to Auschwitz. As to the question of who betrayed the family to the Nazis, all the witnesses were long dead, their evidence thinned by time. But Pancoke leaned on decades of experience and intuition, starting with the old case files. In a normal cold case, you go to a file, you pull it out, you read through everything that the previous investigation did. Interviews, leads that were followed up on. Two previous Dutch police investigations into the raid on Anne Frank's hiding place, one in 1948 and another in 1963, were not exactly masterclasses in detective work. And a lot of time had passed. The files were incomplete and they were scattered about in probably a dozen different archives. Reports were missing. Witnesses had passed on, memories had failed. Pulling from the standard cold case playbook, Vince Pancoke followed up on what leads he could. Otherwise, he and his team had to take a fresh approach. They spent years in places like the Amsterdam City Archives, where the meticulous Dutch record-keeping used so brutally by the Nazis proved a major asset to the investigation. People were forced to wear this star. Along with Peter Van Twisk, a veteran Dutch journalist who co-founded this project and led the research team, they showed us a trove of items they dug up, including a residence card belonging to Anne Frank. You can see here her name, her first name, second name, and her surname, and the date of birth. 
Here you see NI, which stands for Nederlands Israelis, which is her religion. Netherland Israelis. So yeah, I don't know why. Jewish. Jewish. She was Jewish. Yeah. Every Dutch resident had to have one of these. Yeah. yeah. This is this is Living. very detailed, and this has her her parents' birth dates on yeah. it. That's of course also why it was quite easy for the Nazis to to find people in the Netherlands and to know if who was Jewish and who was not Jewish. One one piece of paper in the 40s, and you've got everything you could want to know about someone. Yeah. The team fed every morsel they could, letters, maps, photos, even whole books, into the artificial intelligence database developed specifically for the project. Then they let machine learning do its thing. It would identify relationships between people, addresses that were alike, and we were looking for those connections, clues to solving this. Quantify how much time that saved you. Oh, uh, thousands and thousands of man hours. This also tells you what's garbage, what's excluded, what isn't going to help your case. Oh, yeah, because much of what we do is eliminating the unnecessary. The team paid particular attention to arrest records from the time. The Nazis were hell-bent on ridding the Netherlands of all Jews, part of the final solution. By 1942, the Franks were among some 25,000 Jews in hiding across the country. The Nazis were coldly skilled at getting people to talk. Their typical MO was, once they arrested somebody, the first question that was posed to them, do you know where any other Jews are in hiding? So what we did is we chronicled all the arrests prior to and just after the annex raid to try to find any connection, any loose thread that would show us that they went from one arrest to another and then ultimately to the annex. And the implication is, I'll make your sentence more lenient if you give up some names. Yeah. Effective? Oh, it was very effective. Before long, suspects emerged, dozens of them. Like Willem van Maren, an employee in the warehouse where the Franks were hiding, whom the Dutch police had interviewed in their investigations. He was prime suspect number one after the war. He's working downstairs in the warehouse. He was very shifty, suspicious, actually a thief. Seems like shifty, suspicious thief, and yet you eliminated him as a suspect. Not a betrayer, though. He was not anti-Semitic. Um, he had incentive not to betray them because if he did, he would have lost his job. The business would have been closed. What specifically are you looking for when you're considering suspects? We're looking at, did they have the knowledge? We look at their motive. You know, what would the motive be? Were they anti-Semitic? Um, were they trying to do this for money? And then opportunity, were they even in town? So this knowledge, motive, opportunity, that's, I'm guessing, what you're using when you're infiltrating drug cartels? I mean, this is standard FBI It's technique. standard law enforcement technique. What kind of a person would betray the Frank family? You would expect maybe that a very bad person did this a person with, a, I would say, a uh, psychopathic mind would, would do this. Brom Vandermeer knows psychopathic minds. He had been an investigative psychologist with the National Police Force in the Netherlands. On Vince Pankoke's team, he analyzed the behavior and mindsets of suspects they were considering. That's your first instinct, so there had to be a psychopath to do this. Yeah, but you have to be so very careful. It's war. You're surviving. Your day-to-day -day life is filled with fear. Your family might be arrested the next day. You're thinking every day about your own survival. So that's the context. In a vacuum, it had to be a psychopath to do this. But given the context... That's right. Then what kind of person yeah, might and do then, this? And then you end up in 
uh, in a situation where it could be anybody. Over time, their focus shifted to someone who, on the surface, might not have raised suspicions. This suspect wasn't a neighbor of the Franks and didn't work for them. But the FBI man's sixth sense kicked in. Arnold Vandenberg was a prominent Jewish businessman with a wife and kids in Amsterdam. After the invasion, he served on the Jewish Council, a body the Nazis set up, nefariously, to carry out their policies within the Jewish community. In exchange for doing the Nazis' bidding, members might be spared the gas chambers. We know from history that the Jewish Council was dissolved in late September of 1943, and they were sent to the camps. We figured, well, if Arnold Vandenberg is in a camp somewhere, he certainly can't be privy to information that would lead to the compromise of the annex. Was he in a camp somewhere? Well, we thought he was, so due diligence, we started a search, and we couldn't find Arnold Vandenberg or any of his immediate family members in those camps. Why not? Well, that was the question. If he wasn't in the camps, where was he? Turned out he was living an open life in the middle of Amsterdam, Vince Pancoke says. Only possible if Vandenberg had some kind of leverage. To my ears, you're describing an operator. Is that fair? I'd call him a chess player. He thought in terms of layers of protection by obtaining different exemptions from being placed into the camps. As it happened, Vandenberg, who died in 1950, had come up before in a report from the 1963 investigation, though astonishingly, there was little apparent follow-up by police. We read just one small paragraph that mentioned that during the interview of Otto Frank, he told them that shortly after liberation, he received an anonymous note identifying his betrayer of the address where they were staying, the annex, as Arnold Vandenberg. Wait, wait. So in the files, there's reference to a note that Otto Frank received that mentions this specific name? Remarkably so, yes. It's listed right there. The note was so striking to Otto Frank that he typed up a copy for his records. Naturally, the veteran FBI man wanted to know, where was that note? This was Any seasoned investigator will tell you that ideally good shoe leather comes garnished with good luck. In 2018, Vincent team located the son of one of the former investigators. There, in the son's home, buried in some old files, Otto's copy of the note. I just want to get this straight. You're talking to the son of an investigator. He says, yeah, 50 years ago, my dad looked into this, and I might have some material. Yeah, we were lucky. You've held the metaphorical smoking gun in your hand before in the FBI. You're handling this anonymous note. Does it feel like a smoking gun? Not a smoking gun, but it feels uh, like a warm gun with the evidence of the bullets sitting nearby. Back at the archives, they showed it to us, Otto's copy. The team used forensic techniques, which they say authenticates it. That handwriting you see? The scribblings of the 1963 detective. The anonymous note informed Otto that he'd been betrayed by Arnold Vandenberg, who'd handed the Nazis an entire list of addresses where Jews were hiding. Whoever it was that authored this anonymous note knew so much, that knew that lists were turned in. And this is information you were able to corroborate. Peter was able to locate in the National Archive records that indicated that, in fact, somebody from the uh, Jewish Council, of which Arnold Vandenberg was a member, was turning over lists of addresses where Jews were in hiding. 
So what's your theory of the case here? How and why would Arnold Vandenberg have betrayed the Frank family? Well, in his role as being a uh, founding member of the Jewish Council, he would have had privy uh, to addresses uh, where Jews were hiding. When Vandenberg lost all his series of protections, exempting him from having to go to the camps, he had to provide something valuable to the Nazis that he's had contact with to let him and his wife at that time stay safe. Is there any evidence he knew who he was giving up? There's no evidence to indicate that he knew who was hiding at any of these addresses. They were just addresses that were provided where Jews were known to have been in hiding. We contacted the foundation Otto Frank started in Switzerland and the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam, neither of which formally participated in the investigation, to try to find out whether they could provide any other evidence that might implicate or clear Arnold Vandenberg. The Anne Frank House said they could not. The foundation is reserving comment until they've seen the entire results of the investigation. The cold case team began to confront the real possibility that Otto Frank might have known the identity of the betrayer. What reason, they wondered, would Otto have had to keep this to himself? He knew that Arnold Vandenberg was Jewish. And in this period after the war, anti-Semitism was still around. So perhaps he just felt that if I bring this up again, with Arnold Vandenberg being Jewish, it'll only stoke the fires further. But we have to keep in mind that the fact that he was Jewish just meant that he was placed into an untenable position by the Nazis to do something to save his life. The team wrestled with these ethical questions. Tice Byens, the filmmaker and documentarian who conceived of the project, wondered whether the revelation would be fodder for bigots and anti-Semites. The conclusion was that this culprit was a Jewish man who, by all yeah. accounts, was yeah. doing what he did to protect his own family. Yeah. What was your emotion when you heard this? I found it very painful. Maybe you could say I even hoped it wouldn't be something like this. Why? Because I feel the pain of all these people being put in, in, a, in a situation which is very hard for us to understand. I suspect when this is revealed, people around the world are going to be uncomfortable with the idea that a Jew betrayed another Jew. I hope so. You hope they will be? Yes, because it shows you how bizarre the Nazi regime really operated and how they brought people to do these terrible things. The, the real question is, what would I have done? That's the real question. Throughout the project, Bayan sought counsel from Menachem Sabah, an Orthodox rabbi in Amsterdam who also serves as chief Jewish chaplain in the Dutch army. Is a greater good being served here? I hope so. I truly hope so. I hope that people will understand that one of the things that the Nazi ideology um, did during the Holocaust was to dehumanize Jewish people. And going back into history and looking for the truth and attaining truth is actually giving the Jewish people back their own humanity. Even if that means that sometimes Jewish people are seen as not acting morally correct, that gives them back their own humanity, because that's the way human beings are when they are faced with existential threats. After his years of investigating this seven-decade-old cold case, we had a hypothetical for Vince Pancoke. You're back to being an FBI agent. You've got this case you've built. You've got your evidence, and you hand it over to the prosecutor, the U.S. attorney. You think you're getting a conviction? 
No. There could be some reasonable doubt. To be clear, it's a circumstantial case. It is a circumstantial case, as many cases are. In today's crime solving, they want positive DNA evidence or video surveillance tape. We can't give you any of that. But in a historical case this old, with all the evidence that we obtain, I think it's pretty convincing. Now back in retirement, Vince Pankoke thinks he's glimpsed a new way to thaw cold cases. He marvels that an investigation that put no one behind bars turned out to be the most significant case of his career. And one, he believes, that brought an answer to a painful historical question. His contemporaries will tell you he's among the best country music has these days. Kentucky-bred Chris Stapleton is a triple threat, a powerfully gifted singer, prolific songwriter, and skilled guitar player. Now 43 years old, his talents have connected with music fans across generations and genres. He's collaborated with artists like Adele, Pink, and Carlos Santana, won five Grammy Awards, and is up for another three this year. But Chris Stapleton wasn't looking for accolades or stardom when he came to Nashville. He was a storyteller, and he invited us backstage to hear his. Before every concert, Chris Stapleton and his all-star band, that includes his wife Morgan, start their night with a pre-show jam. Minutes later, the music takes flight. There's no flash or gimmicks, nothing pre-recorded. It's live music in its purest form. Center stage, Chris Stapleton looks every bit the country music star. But listen carefully. His music weaves between soul southern rock and heart-aching blues. You've sung about whiskey, women, weed, love, and heartbreak. Does it get any more country than that? I don't think it does get any more country than that. When people don't want to label me something other than a country singer, you know, I don't probably sing like a traditional country singer, you know, but ultimately I'm me and I'm just trying to be the best version of that that I can be. And whether that's playing a song that leans into blues or a song that leans into uh, R&B or a song that leans into really distinctly outlaw country, I love all that music and I don't feel limited to playing uh, one type of song. stage, he can silence an arena with a slow-burning ballad, or manipulate his guitar to sound like trouble walking through the door. But offstage, we found Chris Stapleton to be soft-spoken, almost shy. This guitar I got not that long ago. He showed us around his band cave in Nashville. 
a rehearsal space filled with artifacts and awards. Those are Grammys, and those are spray-painted waffle irons. They're based on airplay in the Waffle House jukebox. So, as far as I know, we, we've won the most. The golden waffle? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's called a toonie. I mean, Grammys are cool. Yeah. This is fellow musicians voting for you. Yeah. This is the people voting for you. The walls of the warehouse are lined with the instruments and gear he collects obsessively. Do you have a favorite guitar? Is like this is only a fraction of it. He told us he takes about 20 of his guitars on tour. This is number one. If I had to have one guitar and, you know, it was an electric guitar, this would be the one I'd take with me. And the rest of them do other things, and I love them very dearly. But this one, this one is the one that I would take. Did you ever take lessons? I took one lesson, and then the guy that I took a lesson from quit teaching lessons, and so that was kind of the end. Musicians along the way taught him the rest. Any guitar player, like real, you know, technically skilled, trained guitar player will tell you that I'm not a great guitar player. That's not but, what they say. People say you're a great guitar player. Well, they do say that. So yeah. Other people say that. But, yeah. um, I mean, I think I have a good sense of doing what I do. I'm probably more of a stylist than I am a uh, somebody who can do anything. I am good at being me on a guitar. Stapleton's sense of self was sharpened in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. His father was an engineer who worked in the coal mines and kept country music CDs in the car. Chris was an athlete, trying out a starter mustache back in high school. He was also listening to rap artists like Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. It's hard to think about you rolling around listening to Snoop Dogg. Yeah, it was, you know, it was some of the realest it was so real that it translated even to some kid in eastern Kentucky who had no notion of the things that he was talking about, you know. That's interesting you used the word real. Like, it, it felt authentic to you, even though that was not your world. Well, I think it was. And it was dangerous, too. And, and real and dangerous are, uh, you know, very appealing to, uh, you know, 15-, 16-year-old kids. Stapleton graduated valedictorian from his high school and landed at Vanderbilt University, transferred to Kentucky, and then dropped out, eventually discovering his dream job, writing music. You were going to be an engineer? I was at one point, yeah. I did go to engineering what did, school What did you think you were going to do? Uh, I was a, my major was biomedical engineering. So pretty much the same thing you're doing now. Yeah, pretty much the same thing I'm doing now. You know, I was like, well, my dad's an engineer. I'll go be an engineer, you know, and that was... It wasn't for me. Did you know you wanted to be a songwriter? I didn't even know it was a thing. What do you mean? Uh, I just assumed when people sang songs on records that they made it up. Mm -hmm. You know, it was then, coming from them. Yeah, and that, and then you know, I met somebody who was a songwriter, and then it was just like, that's a job. They're going to pay you to sit in a room and make things up on a guitar. That's that's the, I need that job. That's the job I want. In 2001, armed with the songs he'd been writing since high school, Stapleton went back to Nashville. Four days after arriving in town, he got a job with a music publishing company, writing for other artists. He'd go on to write for some of country's biggest stars, like George Strait, Miranda Lambert, Luke Bryan, and Blake Shelton. How many songs do you think you've written? I don't know, probably in excess of a thousand. A thousand? How many do you think are good? <laughs> Ten. Stop. <laughs> 
That's the difference between whiskey and you. What's a win for writing a song? When do you know, okay, this is, I did this well? I don't think I ever know that. The win is finishing the song. And there are a lot of songwriters who would claim that they know, yeah, I knew the instant we wrote this one that it was six-week number one and, and I was going to get a big giant check in the mail. I really just think those guys were full of shit. I don't think anybody knows that. Like, you can't possibly know how everybody's going to feel about a song that you write. That's impossible to know. I don't trust computer research or phone surveys or anything like that. You have to take it to the people. I trust people. And I trust people who have taste. People like his wife, Morgan. She was the one with the record deal when they met. Her deal didn't last, but theirs did. She is the mother of their five children, his muse and harmony singer. What was your first impression when you heard his voice, when you heard him sing as a musician? It was very much a, a whoa. He's so powerful. The vol just the sheer volume of his voice is just, it, he doesn't need a microphone in a room this quiet. It's powerful. But Morgan says Chris never craved the spotlight. He was happy writing songs for others and enjoying a side hustle playing in bands. Still, his powerful voice was gaining legend around Nashville's Music Row. At age 33, already a 10-year veteran of the country music scene, Universal Music Group offered him his own record deal. Morgan had to convince him to say yes. You didn't jump on it right off the bat because of what? Oh, I'm suspicious of most things. It's just part of my personality. It is? Yeah. What were you suspicious of? They were going to tell you to, know. like, shave your beard and get a spray tan? Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. Just My answer back was, okay, I, I'll do this, but um, I'm going to need to, you know, do what I want to do. What do you listen to? He went on to release his first single in 2013, but it went nowhere. The same month that that single died, my dad also passed away in that same month, and it was it was a bad month, mm -hmm. and I didn't didn't feel great about it. Um, I was in a real bad spot. Hoping to help, Morgan bought this vintage Jeep Chris had been eyeing online, even though it was 1,600 miles away in Phoenix, Arizona. They picked it up, and on the trip back to Nashville, he wrote Traveler the title track to his first solo album. The collection of 14 songs would be a turning point in his career. We did that whole record in a week. You did Traveler in one week? Yeah. You gotta be kidding me. We were on a roll, yeah. and that's the only way I can describe it. Did you know in your heart, like, I know what this should sound like, I know what this should be? Well, I wanted to make a record that I thought my dad would have liked. Music critics loved it. But early on, the album was only a modest success. That changed overnight, when at the 2015 CMA Awards, pop star Justin Timberlake, a new friend and fan, joined him to perform. It was electric. You know, kind of lightning in a bottle kind of moments. That was one of them, for sure. Maybe the biggest one for us, you know. Most people that were watching that show had never heard of me at that point. And then sales of that record went up, you know, 
a bazillion percent, and it was just nutty after that. Chris Stapleton, Traveler. Stapleton won four CMA awards that night, two Grammys a few months later, something he never dreamed of when he came to Nashville to write music. This is Lower Broadway. One time, a long time ago, just for almost a gag, man, a buddy came down and said, well, I'm just gonna play on the, the corner and see what I can do. You did? I did, so I played on the corner and, uh, and I made like, I don't know, 40 bucks in an hour. And at that point, that was the most money I'd ever made in an hour. And I was like, <laughs> maybe I should just come here and play on the street. More than a decade later, just blocks from that corner, this was the crowd that came to hear him. Chris Stapleton has grown into one of the biggest stars in country music, but he remains one of the most reluctant. I got love, It must be hard for you to hide out right now. You're a very distinct-looking fella. I am a very distinct-looking fellow. I can hide out. I can walk around a lot of places if I'm not wearing the hat, know, the hat, and you know, all blacked out. But um, and also, I'm kind of scary-looking. So it also gives people just enough pause sometimes to go. I don't know if I should walk up to him right now. look like a hell's angel, but his songs reveal Chris Stapleton's true character. Under the hat, it's all heart. Thank you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm John Wertheim. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com. 
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.